Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And in this month's look at what's happening on Melbourne's cinema screens, we're going to take a look at Yen Tan's drama 1985, Jim Cummings' Thunder Road, and as well as sharing the Cultural Capital film diary. But first, Sebastian Lilo's Gloria Bell. Love is in the air. You come here a lot? Yes. No, not a lot. I mean, sometimes. What's your name? Gloria. And I don't know if I'm being foolish. Hello? I don't know if I'm Are you asking me out? Ow, ow. You want more of the sides? Uh, a little bit more than that, actually. You might know Chilean filmmaker Sebastian Lelio from his films A Fantastic Woman and Disobedience. I believe both of which were previously reviewed here. Correct. So he's continuing what's a fairly productive run then with Gloria Bell, an American set remake of his 2013 Chilean film, Gloria. Gloria. Julianne Moore stars as Gloria Bell, a middle-aged woman in Los Angeles. Her two adult children, played by Michael Sarah and Karen Pistorius, have their own lives and she's long since divorced from ex-husband Dustin, played in one memorable scene by Brad Garrett. She spends her time dancing in LA nightclubs, working a dull insurance-related job, and having dinner with friends, including Vicky, played by Rita Wilson. One night while dancing, she meets Arnold, played by John Turturro, and the two begin a complicated romance. All of this is told in a distinctive vignette-like style, and the end result is a fascinating and empathetic character study. Eloise, were you moved by Gloria Bell? I really was. I am very into this, as you describe it, a vignette style narrative or like the fragmented kind of narrative. It's very um, effective, I think, and has been um, the style of many of my favourite films of the last maybe year or two at least. And so I find that like kind of cumulative effect of all of these little snippets of someone's life very um moving and that we do kind of get a sense of who she is without any external description it's just instead by seeing her alone operating as she does at home or in these nightclubs or uh, you know alone in her office um doing her work alone in her car singing power ballads which were some of my favorite moments Mm. of the film um and i was really really swept away by her you can probably put that to her performance I think I mean in a lot of these films where you don't have classical style of like narrative introduction to a character or to a story it does all rely so much on a character and I was really um, affected by Julianne Moore I think less so than by John Turturro not probably not because of anything that he did wrong I just can't ever get him as John Turturro out of my head he's always just John (laughs) Turturro for me um but maybe he was you know less well sketched I actually thought that her children who we kind of see a lot less directly were maybe more full characters than and even her ex-husband were more full characters than someone like John Turturro but we can maybe talk about that in a little while Andy yeah I thought this was really great I really loved Julianne Moore's performance I liked finding out that she was responsible for its existence she saw the 2013 film and told Lilo that she wanted him to remake it um, I love the fact that 
uh, he is so bold with his colours. Like we in Disobedience last time we saw him, it was a lot more, a lot of out exterior shots. It was like England, low sky, all that sort of stuff. And here we have hashtag a, Orthodox Jew. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> perfect again, perfect use of um, the cinematography and production design, and all that sort of stuff. And here we get lots of vibrant colours. We get a real sense of her spirit. I'd love to know that these clubs actually exist where fifty plus people go and dance to disco songs and songs from the early eighties because I don't, I've got the feeling there were a few things that maybe were in translation not quite so believable like i mean the ties that torturo's character arnold has with his family is something that would be unquestioned in i think south american culture and in in the u.s it's like he has to explain it a bit more he's kind of a little more defensive i suppose maybe that makes his character a little harder to relate to like you were saying i would i would agree that he's not often given a chance to really be himself rather than i mean i do believe that i don't think it was too far-fetched even in american culture for uh, you know that kind of those demands especially you know he makes this throwaway comment to rising rent prices because his daughters live yeah. with his mother <laughs> in redondo beach you know like yeah. because that is the the kind of economic struggle that i guess the younger generation have these days that that was not unbelievable to me no no i don't think it's unbelievable i just thought that it was a little Odd, odd, more curious, I suppose, or a little un- more mm. unusual. Yeah, I love the the way that these scenes are put together. Like often, songs are kind of cut off halfway through when we cut from one scene to another. Like the the way that this is so fragmented, it's, it's kind of like he's making a point of it. Uh, and I thought, yeah, the cumulatively, I think it, it really, really adds up. So that, I, yeah, I thought I was quite moved by the end. Great uh, music supervision. How great was the music supervisor that they could get the rights to all of these songs? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty amazing double album soundtrack if it exists. If I it was just exist. thinking we were just listening to Gloria on at Anders Place before we should have played the whole Gloria um, soundtrack. Listeners will note that we already have had a snippet of Gloria, <laughs> and we will have more uh, of yes, it later. And on. we will have more as the episode goes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, thank you to our very own uh, sound <laughs> producer. Um, I think it was a little look. I did. I do think that it's cumulatively powerful this film however maybe by the two-thirds mark I was a little distance from it and I think Julianne Moore never describes her feelings to anyone and when her kids kind of question who Arnold is because the film is fragmented and we see her very much from an exterior perspective she she may describe who who he is to her but but the film cuts away from that and so maybe I was slightly not tired of it but just I wanted something more to happen. What um, did you make of it Anders? Yeah no I agree I thought it was um, a really fascinating character study. I thought her performance was sort of key to a lot of it. I just wanted to quote from Manola Dargis's review in the New York Times um, one of Gloria's friends at work uh, is this woman who's sort of struggling in the job and she's sort of a bit lost, I guess, as, as Gloria is, but perhaps a bit more lost. Um, and so here's, here's Manola Dargas talking about that character. She writes, She's worried about the future and during a short break at the insurance company, the women speak anxiously about retirement money. The scene is almost over before it begins, but it offers a glimpse of a world of cruelty and confusion that also pulses under the surface here suggesting why Gloria likes to lose herself on the dance floor. Gloria dances because it makes her happy, but also maybe because, like many, as the song says, she's on the run. And I thought that was a very interesting um, examination of the fact that there is, around this fairly comfortable life, um, although a life that is somewhat adrift, um, but there is this sense of this sort of creeping 
you know, reality, the harsher edges that she, that the film and that this character seems to sort of file away or, or flick away. I mean, she goes, she calls on her mother when she gets stranded in Vegas, for example. Um, and Chad, just, Holland, Taylor. Yeah, like, yeah, I feel fantastic. like most of people, all the people in the world right now, maybe I would just like to meet her. She's so <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, she is um, great. And, and yeah, her character was quite interesting too. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But really yeah, just the sense that you know, Gloria can't, she can't be dancing on that dance floor forever. And I find that really, there's an interesting sort of undercurrent But I mean, here. she she says, you know, when she and um, Arnold, uh, at first, the first scene when they kind of went to the, their couple's friend's house, I thought it was Arnold's friends, but um, Rita Wilson and mm. some guy who plays her husband, I don't know who it is. But anyway, so they're this other couple and it was revealed that they're um, – Gloria's friends and they're having this conversation about how the generation thinks it's the end of the world because of climate change and and everything and then the other husband says well every generation thought that their generation was experiencing the end of the world which is so true um but Gloria just kind of interrupts this um serious discussion and says um well, when the world blows up, I hope I'm on the dance yeah, floor. I hope I'm dancing. Yeah, yeah. I hope I'm dancing. You know, so it's like, well, maybe she can dance forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think actually that is maybe the entire film, the key moment in the film, actually, that that very line of dialogue. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I just find that really an interesting dynamic that plays out um, in in the film. I thought... It was kind of funny to see Michael Cera in that role. Yes, yeah. He, I, appreciate I mean, that. it was fine. Um, yeah. Yeah, I quite liked it. I yeah. thought it was good. I'm, I'm dying to see the original because he's called it, he's like sort of resisting this idea that it's a straight up remake. He's yeah. saying it's a cover version. Well, friend of the podcast, Joanna DiMattia, was telling me yesterday, she hasn't seen Gloria Bell, the remake, but she said that she's heard it's like a shot for shot remake kind of thing. Well, um, I watched the trailer of the original mm. and it the tra- it was almost like a shot to shot. Yeah, the trailer right. was very similar. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder, I do wonder then where that difference is and where it comes. Some people have said that this version's perhaps a bit lighter. Yeah, I mean, I thought for me that party, the scene, there's a scene at a party partway through where we meet um, her ex-partner, Dustin, and uh, and I think that that's where we get a lot of openness, where Arnold you know, uh, makes his way <laughs> in a way that becomes apparent um, later in the film. Uh, that he repeats. Um, Actually, Brad Garrett was really good in that. I thought he was cr- who I've so good. Seen in yeah, with what's he been Raymond. in? Oh, is that what he's in? I'm pretty sure that's what he's from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're right. I, yeah. I was like, where do I know this guy from? Yeah, Not that there was a lot of that for me. Yeah. Everybody loves Raymond. Yeah, but, you know, everyone either. knows the people from it. But yeah, he was great. Yeah. And Ray Romano was great too in his sort of late career. Yeah. So all yeah. these people in, were not in Gloria. No, no, sorry, no. In I'm thinking of. Oh, what was the film he was in? Oh, He's been in heaps of films recently. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought he was great too. In and Jeanne Triplehorn. Yes, mm. yes, yes. Um, yeah, who I thought for a second was Sella Ward, you know, the wife from um, The Fugitive. Anyway, I always confuse oh. the two of them. Oh, right. Um, also, shout out to Twin Peaks' Chris Mulkey, who plays Hank Jennings in Twin Peaks. He's playing the guitar in a short scene in this film, and I was always welcome to see him again. I also loved the chick who played uh, the daughter. Yes, yes, New Zealand again. actor. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, she was really like fascinating. Just the way the camera sometimes kind of settled on her face, and she, you kind of got a sense that she was as unsure yeah. but determined as her mother. Yeah, Karen and, Pistorius. Yeah, that mm. was really quite fascinating. I thought. Yeah, and uh, yeah, actually, that's that is quite interesting. <laughs> and it's good that you 
mention that because she does go on an interesting journey too. Yeah, she does, yeah. In the film. Um, yeah, so I just want to get back to that party scene because that's one of the few times that I find Gloria a fairly emotionally unreliable narrator. <laughs> that there's one, there's some scenes there where mm. we actually get to really... She gets a bit drunk and we kind of get a bit of honesty, just a little brief insight. So I think there's a few scenes like that and the one that Mahalia Dargas called out that I think just slice through just a little bit and, very, that, and it's much needed. You mean emotionally unreliable well, narrator because we don't actually hear what she has yeah, to say like you were because saying before. the film is so fragmented, right? Yeah, so exactly. So there's not like a part where she talks to her counsellor or yeah. opens up to her best friend or something. We get lots of shots of her life and then we kind of have to draw our own conclusions apart from these few scenes. Yeah, the only thing, I mean, the only kind of emotional, apart from that drunkenness maybe, you know, release we get from her is where she's kind of asking her children to call her back or yeah, yeah. like <laughs> she demanding of Arnold that he pays her more attention. I mean, that poem that he reads her, oh, that was such Christ, a moving that was scene. Good. Yes. That poem had yes. built so well. I was so moved by it. Yes. And then, you know, the way that it's kind of handled in the film, you can tell why she kind of blows up essentially in that moment. Yeah, that was really striking. Um, yeah, and I love how she leaves those messages on her children's phones. <laughs> At least 30-second messages, then finishes it with it, it's your mother. <laughs> I know. It's <laughs> gorgeous. Um, yeah, Gloria Bell. Recommended, I think. Yeah, I recommend it, definitely. And people in the cinema with us seem to be enjoying it a lot. Yeah, they did. There were some people who were loving it. Yes. Oh, really? And the, some and the music. people... When maybe it was, I think it was at the like the second time you see Julianne Moore and John Turturro have sex. These people kind of very vocally said, "I'm out of here," and walked out of the cinema. I'm like, is it like I don't know exactly what it was or whether it was completely unrelated to the movie that they just. But I think that they were you know, having a girl's kind of afternoon, Saturday afternoon at the movies and that yeah, they'd left some of their other friends there and just had to walk out. I don't know whether, maybe it was, you know, the too much curly hair or something. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Well, I'm all for geriatric sex or sex <laughs> with partners. Same. It's so... it's underrated and it's so it emotionally loaded. <laughs> it's great. I know. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've talked before, I think, when we talked about A Fantastic Woman and I really didn't like that film. I think I like it less and less you know the further i got away from it but that he uh, sebastian lelio is a guy who focuses on stories of people whose stories don't often get told or um people who kind of are mentioned on the periphery of things and so like a middle-aged woman who's divorced you know what does she doesn't just sit at home the whole time you know for the last 40 years of her life you know she's got to do something kind of thing and so so he is um, someone who really focuses on that and hopefully there are more instances Mm. that he gets to do that kind of thing yeah especially when it's done in such a fairly casual way like it's Mm. like this is just part of her life and then we're on to the next scene it's not like oh my god this is a really big thing that i'm going to dramatically lead up to and exactly right it does all feel like uh it's just yeah it's her life this is the texture of her life it's not imbued with uh, any false scene uh, feeling, sort of emotional stakes. Mm. She doesn't even tell her work colleague, I went out dancing last night, right? Like, so it's so, it's not even a special occurrence for her. Mm. It's just what she does. She does. Um, Also, just one little uh, production design note. She seems to be drinking a lot of martinis, Mm. Mm, which reminded me of a certain television show where (laughs) older women drink a lot of martinis. (laughs) I was just wondering if it is the signature drink for the over 50 set. Maybe it is. I mean, she. I didn't see as many olives involved, mm, true, but um, yeah. 
No, they were curls. They were. Like I mean, I drink martinis, Andy. What are you saying? I'm about saying me? that you're in a very good company <laughs> with that. <laughs> I would love to have martinis with any of those ladies. That um, would be an honour. Yeah. <laughs> Which brings us to this month's Cultural Capital Film Diary. The Spanish Film Festival runs until May 26th, and there you can catch Rodrigo Sorogoyan's acclaimed drama The Realm, Aranchi's Ikiavara's queer romance Carmen and Lola, and the closing night film, a 30th anniversary screening of Pedro Almodovar's Women on the Verge of a, Nerv- of a Nervous Breakdown. On Friday, May 3rd at the Astor, you can catch both of Jordan Peele's films Get Out and Us, which are screening back-to-back, or a double bill of Destroyer, which we reviewed on our last episode, and Dan Gilroy's thriller Nightcrawler on May 11. The Human Rights Arts and Film Festival runs at Acme from May 9 to 23. Highlights include the opening night Utopian documentary 2040, a look at the biggest corruption scandal in history, like Panama Papers, and the film Australia Says Yes about the same-sex marriage activism in 2018. Acme is also screening Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie until May 23rd. A season of films from acclaimed Mexican auteur Carlos Regardas is running through May at Acme, including screenings of his debut Hapon, Silent Light and Post Tenebrous Lux. From May 2nd, you can catch up on the clandestine cinema in Iran in Three Faces and the films of Jafar Panahi. Eloise, could you tell us more about this particular season? I understand you're well informed. I am slightly well informed. So I, on the 2nd of May, Thursday, uh, am moderating a panel um, discussion about Jafar Panahi's films and just in general creativity under censorship. So the panel guests are uh, Dr. Anne uh, Demi Giraud, who teaches... Um, Asian Pacific Cinema at Griffith Film School and knows a lot about Iranian cinema and, um, you know, Panahi and uh, the impact of censorship, I think, on creativity and on the film industry and, and things like that. And the other panel member is Guo Jian, who is an artist and um, seems to, you know, uh, he will, I guess, have a lot to bring to the panel about um, censorship in China and creativity under the Cultural Revolution um, and things like that. So it should be a really fascinating conversation, but that's to celebrate the opening night. And I think the first screening of Three Faces is just after that, which is mm-hmm. Panahi's new film. So, I mean, the focus on the censorship thing is because Panahi has for the last 10 years been, I think, essentially under house arrest or he's been banned from making films, banned from leaving the country kind of thing. But he's still had something of a filmmaking career. He's managed to um, make these you know movies in a slightly I suppose you'd say tricky way so this is not a film is one that they're screening which is just a documentary about him in his home struggling to not make a film that he (laughs) really wanted to make essentially and Mm. at one point he starts describing it and then he gets visibly frustrated it's actually a very affecting moment he says like why why talk about a film when you can't actually make one? There's no point kind of thing. So you get this sense that within him there's a real conflict. I mean, of course, you know, being banned from making a film when you're a filmmaker would be a horrific thing and how do you deal with that? Anyway, it should be a really fascinating season. And yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So he has a long career before he was um, banned mm. from making films. Um, but I think that this season is focused just on the stuff he made after that. And what is happening at Cinematheque? At Cinematheque, we are just finishing a Robert Aldrich season. Um, So the next two films this Wednesday night are Vera Cruz and 
Too Late the Hero. And after that is, I've got to get this right because people are making fun of me, but there are two seasons in a row by filmmakers whose surnames start with the letter O. And I can't remember whose is who, <laughs> what is what. I think it's Ozu, six films, oh, Ozu yeah, season. Right. Um, yeah, as the last season before Acme relocates to the Capitol Theatre. Yes, and so, Treasury Theatre, some screenings I think are at as well. Yeah, none of the cinematechs are going to be at uh, the Treasury, but um, Acme is kind of moving to two different cinemas, I think, while their whole um, gallery space is renovated. So, mm, yeah, okay. the Ozu season is our last one. At that fair square site mm. for probably a year. Really? It's going to take a year? I think, well, you oh, know, wow. who knows? It shouldn't take that long, but um, that's what that's what um, the kind of general, I think, timeline is. Right. Because, of okay. course, there's Christmas and people need to have holidays. and um, But it's a really big, you know, they're changing the whole fit out and redesigning the exhibition space. It looks like a fantastic project. Great. Well... Melbourne will be a different place after that. It sure will. Mm. It sure will. Definitely. Christmas wasn't the same without you. I'm really glad you made it back this year. Just as soon as you could. You couldn't have left any faster. You don't even talk to your own family anymore. So stop telling me what I should do. I spoke with Carly, and I think she's still on the market. So then why did you call me today? Why are we doing this? I just want to see you one last time. And that was a clip from the trailer to Yen Tan's film 1985. Set in the titular year of 1985, Yen Tan's modest feature introduces Adrian, a man who has travelled home from New York to his family in Texas for Christmas. You sense a slight discomfort in his homecoming with his rejected younger brother Andrew, his overly attentive mother Eileen and his stern conservative father Dale, all presenting kind of different welcomes to Adrian. It becomes clear that he has at some point in his life in New York contracted AIDS and a lover who has recently died is kind of weighing on his mind and Adrian is struggling to come to terms with his imminent death. You know, in 1985, if you had this virus, you it was a death sentence. He's also struggling with his closeted identity with his family and fears opening himself to his religious relatives and his conservative hometown. Filmed in grainy 16mm in black and white, this is a portrait of a time that is paired back in its script, but not in its emotional intensity. Anders, why did this film mean so much to you? Yeah, I really, really actually found this quite a resonant film and quite amazing, the emotional impact it has on such a small budget. Yeah, I just thought it was such a stifling claustrophobic portrait of life in the closet really for this for this young man who has returned back to yeah his very conservative family's um his sort of childhood home as his dad who's played by michael chiklis um in quite a good i've, I've sort of realized since i was watching it how much i've missed actually seeing him um he's very good in these sort of roles as sort of taking this archetypal idea of the gruff conservative 
male figure and then sort of adding some texture to that, I guess. Anyway, most of the film's action takes place in their very small home and most of the film's dialogue is... uh, And most of the... Yeah, the film's dialogue is captured in very sort of close-up, sort of stifling conditions. And so the result of this is it all becomes a little bit claustrophobic and I think very deliberately... um, it through both the screenplay and the film form, it sort of becomes this really affecting portrait of, I guess, repression and life in the closet for this young man. Not only um, is he gay, but he is also HIV positive. And um, what's interesting about the film is it never explicitly says this, but it does suggest he only has a short amount of time to live. So he's, he's essentially come home to tell this to his pa- parents and he just can't quite bring himself to do it and it's just such what's interesting to me is that you kind of well at least i did think you think he's come home to tell his parents that he's going to die and that he's gay i mean i don't know because the film doesn't say and i don't think it needs to say but you get a sense that he's just going to go back to new york and he's going to die and he it, it doesn't matter yeah, I mean, this It is doesn't matter to him that he tells his parents one way or another because he's going to be dead. <laughs> I, yeah, I think, well, I think, I take a point. I think I agree with it. Um, although, you can, I, I think there is part of him that wants to say it anyway. But mm. I think the actual key relationship in the film is between him and his brother. And there is this sort of very striking monologue that instantly reminded me of uh, the dad's monologue in Call Me By Your Name, uh, which is what the main character sort of records in this tape um, that he leaves for his younger brother that... And that paired with the, the... So, basically, it's sort of like this montage of scenes of him living his more liberated life in New York City. The first time, really, in the entire film that we see him outside of the context of this house is right at the end. And over the top of that, we hear him recording this tape for his younger brother because the film sort of suggests that his younger brother is also gay. Um, and he's saying, you know, essentially you're not alone and there are places where you can, you know, be yourself and, you know, the whole world's a bit more interesting. Uh, but, you know, it's it's awful, but you you only have to, you know, survive until the end of high school and you can sort of discover this whole world of gay clubs and, you know, your, your community, I guess, your true community. And that was such a powerful moment. And I think it was powerful in part because the rest of the film is so stiflingly claustrophobic. And then there's this sort of this minor eruption. And it could be easy to overstate this, but it really does feel like this rupture of emotion and freedom. And it's just so, at the same time, the filmmaking is so gentle and so restrained. And I think that's quite an impressive effect to create out of quite restrained filmmaking technique. Um, and that's, uh, I think, another reason to love this film. What did you think, Andy? Yeah, I thought this was really, really powerful. I loved it. I really liked that his motivation to me felt like he just wanted to go back and create really good memories mm. for everybody involved, like with presence, with his pre- like with his presence, the fact that he was avoiding confrontation. There was all this stuff that was unspoken that you sensed everybody else knew and did not need to be said and would be a very, very difficult conversation to have and it was just best avoided. And there was a lot of beautiful moments where this stuff was suggested and hinted at. Um, I really love the use of 16 mil, um, yeah. which was kept yeah. everything very grainy. So even when you had these quite intense scenes, everything was literally blending together on the screen in front of you. So that every, it was like this cohesion in a way where the, you could sense the family relationships, you could sense all the stuff that, was being uns- that wasn't being said. There's a very key scene in the backyard with the, f- with the father and the son. 
Yes. And that, just the, if you break that particular scene down, it's like a medium shot from a distance. So we're outside, which is fairly unusual because there's a few scenes, I think, where he, he runs into an old high school friend outside a supermarket. He catches up with uh, Carly, his friend who's doing stand-up. Um, but this is like one of the other few scenes that takes place outside between him and his father, and his father's a bit drunk, and so they're opening up. And then you see, you sit, kind of sit there, we watch from, from a distance, and then suddenly there's a cut to the father um, quite close up, and it feels almost like a cymbal smash or something, like, like this is like really, it's just loaded. Like just to see a single cut like that just makes you aware of the quality of filmmaking and that's storytelling so that's going on here. earlier than that, there is movement in the scene right yes, in that yeah, yeah. shot he walks so into one it. of the characters starts to walk away and then comes back and the camera doesn't cut then mm, yeah and so you sense that the cuts are really yeah used economically only when they absolutely have to be yeah and that's the key word for me for this film economical it's so efficient like it was almost being seduced and abandoned like it's just left me like emotionally wrecked when i was like well, that was not even an hour and a half mm. <laughs> it's yeah, just no, so exactly so efficiently told so beautifully i was spun. reading an interview with um, the filmmaker by Craig Matheson in Fairfax um, online and the uh, Yen Tan said that he wanted to avoid cuts because they interfere with, I mean, editing interferes with emotion, I think. Mm, um, yep, and that right. too many cuts is like kind of cr- trying to create drama when there's enough drama for him, at least, I think, in the characters and what, what Adrian's going through and what this family is experiencing. And so he wanted to have as few as possible. He also said of the black and white that it honours the circumstances, but it's of the 1980s, I think. But it's not a film that's nostalgic for the era, which is really important. Like mm. you do, you get that sense, like it's beautiful, but it's not overly beautiful and it's not saying let's all go back to 1985 because things were so great because black and white looks just so stunning um like that's (laughs) not what's happening you know you're right andy at times it's so grainy that you can't even really see yeah what's in the background kind of thing or you know it takes you a second to realize where they are um or what's happening kind of thing and so it's really important that it doesn't it's not like you know, <laughs> Roma, which is <laughs> black and white and beautiful. And he's like, oh, my God, how how great was 1972 in Mexico City um, kind of thing. It's like very different to that. Yeah, which is – and I really, really appreciated the fact that there was no obvious 1985 music. When there is music, and there's quite a lot, it's really great, obscure stuff. So Madonna gets mentioned but never mm. heard. There's no culture club. There's no, like, obvious nods to Live Aid or anything like that. It's all, like, yeah. really kind of cool, really interesting 808 mm. sort of hip-hop, dance, electro music, really early – Stuff which I absolutely loved. It did feel to me like this could have come out the same year as Desert Hearts or something like that. Like it, it feels mm-hmm. so much a product of that time without, like you and Craig Matheson were saying, not being nostalgic. Yeah. Just felt so authentic, so much of that time. And those cultural signifiers I find really interesting. I wrote, I sort of went into detail about this when I reviewed it for Daily Review. But this idea that you know his younger brother loves Madonna cassettes. When they go to the movie, it was hilarious. When I went to the movies, I love that they see um, <laughs> Nightmare, Nightmare 2. 2, which is the gayest horror film is ever it? made. I saw you'd written that. Yes. I didn't know that. So there are all these little uh, references wow, there. Cool. And as I said in that review, it's more than just economic storytelling. It also really speaks, I think, to the power of pop culture um, and so true, yeah. and get cultural signifiers for people who are living in the closet or who 
you want something to latch on to, particularly at a time when, you know, representation was nowhere near the thing that we talk about it is today. So instead you have to find it in all sorts of coded ways. And this film, I think, is a master, yeah, masterful it really at is. Um, presenting them and, and particularly in relate, how they relate to the, this character of the younger brother. Yes, definitely. And, well, the fact that there is so, such good attention to detail here makes, just tr- makes you trust the rest of the world that you don't see. Yeah. So much more, I think. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, we haven't even talked about Virginia Madsen. Oh, good lord. Wonderful as this in this sort of yes. difficult so role yeah. as this mother, this loving mother who you sort of suspect knows that her son is gay. You, you can tell she wants to yeah, she kind of wants to say things, but she can't but anyway, but she loves her son. Anyway, but she goes on a very interesting journey with her sort of, you know, those little things she says about how oh, she didn't even vote for Bush, uh, Reagan. Reagan. Reagan for Reagan. Yeah. And, I know. Yeah. <laughs> And you can see the joy on his face when he finds out. Yes. It's so powerful. It's like a little ray of light in this horrible But also the joy on her face that what she said, she's like totally unable to say to anyone, uh, like let alone her husband, like no one in her community kind of thing because it's just so taboo to not be a Republican in Texas in 1985. Mm. Um, and so she kind of is so uh, relieved that her son – expresses like or you know gives off this kind of like attitude yeah that was wonderful all of these characters sort of inhabit certain archetypes but then they sort of go against the grain of those archetypes too they're real people i guess it's not just like oh you know closed-minded conservative you know patriarch Mm. you know there's something there's a bit more to it than that which i quite enjoyed as well and all yeah all of this told in 85 minutes which is quite remarkable yeah it felt longer it feel. did feel longer. Yeah, it was a long journey. And I mean that as a mm, compliment. Same, yeah. I um, mean, there's something in here that, you know, if you think about the aesthetic of the film and the way that all of the dialogue is relayed, which is this, it's kind of very stagey, even though it is emotionally kind of raw. Mm. I can't think of a film to compare it to, but, you know, this could be a really bad film. This could be a mm. film <laughs> made by someone who doesn't know anything about rhythm, who doesn't know anything about editing, who doesn't know anything about... Um, like, you know, telling, actually, like telling a story in script writing. But it's so good. Um, and what is it? Is it just the emotional kind of intensity of the story that makes this a good film instead of a bad one? Or is mm. it something else? Like there are a whole bunch of like amateur films made in the 80s and 90s that try and kind of emulate this sort of aesthetic and fail miserably yeah, yeah, yeah. at it. It just seems like no one knows how to act kind of thing. <laughs> like it could yeah. so easily do that, but it just doesn't. And I think is that because it's like it is actually like a supremely well-written script and that everything is told, everything yeah. there is necessary. There's, it's not like it's a waste of time, anything. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just like just so this isn't a total loving, there are people online who have – like with Gloria Bell gone, not a lot happens in this film. And that, you know, is a problem. Like, oh, I could tell what's going to happen from the opening minute of the film. Look, that, I mean, that, you can kind you of can, know where it's yeah. going, don't you? I mean, I wouldn't say there are any huge surprises here. Well, there were. No, there were surprises, actually. They just weren't in the main narrative arc for me. No, like, I, I mean, a film isn't happen. about getting from A to B necessarily. Yeah. No, it's exactly. About, it's not about, lo- it's about knowing what's going to happen. It's about, about the, yeah, well, the journey. I, the power, I think, comes from... It is. It is. The fact that it's so focused on this story that it becomes a universal story. It becomes a representative story for so many more people. Andrew Lester and his older brother, um, Adrian. Yeah, well, I mean, so, as he says, you know, he's been... he's. 
been to what six funerals this year. He yeah, says still- in one moment. So I mean, yeah, hundreds of thousands of American, you know, predominantly men went through this same thing, mm-hmm. and mm. their community. And this, I mean, this is the real horrific thing: is that um, the whole country for a long time. Um, um, sorry, by the whole country, I mean the people who empower in that country, um, behaved in exactly the same way as this family. It was this, you know, it was shunted off to the side. It was not confronted at all. You know, I mean, there's tapes of Ronald Reagan, you know, and the press um, room, you know, laughing about it. Like, it was just not taken seriously. So it's it's in that sense, this closet that or this experience in this claustrophobic house becomes... Quite a powerful, I think, um, yeah, metonym for the country as a whole. Yeah, 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 that that, yeah, and that's where I think some of its power really lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, so look, I really recommend this film. It's playing at Nova in Melbourne and Dendi, a couple of Dendi cinemas in Sydney and Canberra, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Hi there, are you Jimmy Arno? I am. Hi, I represent a local law firm. I'm here to serve you those papers. From a law firm? Am I getting sued? What am I getting sued for? Not my concern. You won't be able to see her. She's just going to be living with me. Hey, sweetie. Fine, just keep going. Okay. I'm sorry, honey. Do we have to go that fast? That wasn't fast. Look, man, I'm sorry. We couldn't make it. I'm actually kind of glad you didn't. Oh, yeah? My mother was an extremely charitable woman. She loved Bruce Springsteen. She used to sing Thunder Road to me when I was going to sleep. Everything go okay? Everything went normal. Uh, and so we're going to finish uh, this month's episode with a brief discussion of uh, Jim Cummings' film Thunder Road, which won a lot of uh, praise from critics uh, last year when it was released uh, in North America. And it is a very strange film um, in that it juggles a lot of tone. So it essentially tells a story about uh, a police officer living in Texas called Jim Arno, played by the writer and director Jim Cummings. Um, and who we're introduced to at a funeral for his mother. And uh, the opening 10 minutes of this film have been singled out as being some of the best cinema, of, or at least American independent cinema of, of 2018. And it is a very strange mix of uh, pathos and drama and outright comedy, um, almost slapstick at times, but then also extremely sincere, given that uh, this character, Jim Arno, is such, uh, he's dealing with so much. Um, and throughout the film, we see him struggling at work with his family as he's going through a divorce, uh, with his relationship with his daughter. And at every stage, he's kind of got this this stress where he's also, you know, being an active, an active duty policeman puts him in a lot of stress as well. So often in a lot of the scenes, we see him expressing within a few seconds, we can see him just jumping between emotions. And so this seemed to be like win a lot of praise from people. But I can understand how some people may see it as a fairly divisive performance. Um, and as what did you make of Thunder Road? I quite liked it. Um, I wouldn't say I loved it, but it was quite interesting. That opening ten minutes were sort of cringe comedy to the max. Uh, but yeah, it was a real traversal from comedy to drama to everything. And I, it kind of turned me off until the very ending of that monologue. So basically, he's um, I don't I won't say what happens, but he's giving a eulogy at uh, the funeral for his mother, this um, small town cop main character uh and the final minute of this eulogy won me over and then i was like oh okay this is an interesting film and from that moment on i was with it um but it's a bizarre it is tonally bizarre yeah i've not seen anything quite like it before. no no neither Mm. have i i mean this main character is sort of within the sort of pantheon i guess of american 
man-children kind of thing. Yeah. The Seth Rogen-y school, but in a more... But the film goes in a more... Um, Nuanced or yeah, it's interesting. Not, yeah, it never becomes gross out comedy like you know no, Seth no, Rogen no, will often no, get quite like profane and he's a yeah. bit emotionally under yeah uh, underdeveloped as a per, like as a not, lo- lot yeah. of guys growing up in small towns who might not have left yeah, those yeah, towns yeah, yeah. Kind of, um, I I did read a review somewhere that said it was quite interesting because it's uh, one of the first films they've seen to actually explicitly address um, you know the drug epidemic oh, yeah, in like yeah, yeah. rural America and <laughs> I, that's really interesting yeah it is that is threaded and this idea of small small town America in the age of Trump I mean this is all in the background of this film and mm. I, it's, it kind of traverses that but not in an yeah, explicit yeah. way but it does very much no so. it focuses a lot on the characters and particularly I liked the performance of Kendall Farr who played his daughter who I thought was oh she was great yeah, yeah, yeah. it was fantastic I feel like I didn't see this film but I feel like the title put me off it's a springsteen song is it like a weird like if it's about i don't know small town i mean i can kind of see but thunder road makes me feel like it's just like a celebration of whatever this community is where it sounds to me like you guys are saying it's more of a you know sharp criticism somehow I, I mean, yeah. don't judge a book by its cover yeah, and yeah, yeah, all yeah. of that. But, no, it, but it's still, the title just seems it is, like... Yeah. Well, it is a mix of that. Like mm. the song's Thunder Road, which which is never heard. Yeah. In, right. Although in the opening mm. scene, he's trying to play it on a cassette recorder yeah. and it doesn't okay. work. Uh, yeah, it is kind of like both both a celebration and a sort of criticism of just the, how small-minded and mm. how these dramas can be huge in these small towns when they're played on such small canvases. Um, but, re- I mean, really, and, you know, there are a couple of clever things that the film does like you know there's that moment where there's, there's that guy who's drugged off his mind or something yelling oh, yeah. in the street and they like show up to like arrest him this is like almost immediately after his mother's funeral and then later on in the film he essentially recreates that yes. moment <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but with mm. no sort of acknowledgement or self-awareness that he's doing exactly the thing that he was trying to arrest trying somebody to, for yeah, but couldn't exactly yeah. and was you know mocking yeah only uh earlier so you know it's an intelligent film it is it's, it's much smarter than it may seem yeah. at first and yeah. smarter than the, the poster would suggest yeah yeah it's which, not like a dumb american comedy which is kind of what i was expecting well it's yeah the po- at all no the poster will, will make you think of those sort of dumb american cop very comedies. weirdly marketed film because yeah i was expecting a dumb american comedy about some you know doofus sheriff or something I mean, he's a doofus sheriff, but it's not dumb. <laughs> no. And no. there's drama. Shall I watch it? I reckon. Yeah, I it is. It, there's right. a lot to to like here, I think. Um, I think Jim Cummings, whatever he does next, I think will be... Lots of very slow takes. It's good. It's good. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, yeah I'd recommend it. Um, and that is also showing at cinemas around Melbourne, including Nova. And that brings us to the end of episode 61 of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much for listening. You can get extra thanks from us by throwing some stars our way on iTunes. That would be great. Please rate, review and subscribe and we appreciate all of those things. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. You can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Eloise Low Ross. And I'm at Anders Furs. And we think you're great. <laughs> <laughs>